You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. Today is Thanksgiving in the United States, a time when families all around the country gather together to celebrate in time-honoured fashion. Traditionally, those celebrations have revolved around a huge turkey dinner followed by a televised football game. But in recent years, another kind of coming together has been steadily growing in importance, not just for individual families, but also increasingly for the US economy as a whole. I'm talking, of course, about coming together to fight complete strangers over a heavily discounted flat-screen TV at a big-box retailer. What's more, that particular tradition, dubbed Black Friday, as it supposedly marks the time of the year when retailers move out of the red and into the black in profit terms, has migrated from America to the UK, Australia and beyond, as families all across the globe use this singularly American holiday as an excuse to shop for the kind of bargain that really does bring people together in great snaking lines outside stores at midnight. With retailers using increasingly outlandish Black Friday discounts to entice customers into their stores in an attempt to jumpstart the all-important holiday spending season, we take a look at the health of the US consumer and examine what that might mean for the most important component of the economy in every developed country around the world. This week on Adventures in Finance, the retail sector. Today is the 23rd of November 2017 and welcome to episode 43 of Adventures in Finance. In a completely different country, just the way I like it, is producer James. James, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing all right, mate. Obviously the big the big news this week. Drum roll, please. I'm going to allow you to announce this. Twitter followers, let's go. I have 301 Twitter followers. 301. So if I unfollow you, that'll take you to around 300, yeah? I don't do that. You're where I get half my material. This would be, be perfect. Um, now, this week, we are going to dig into something close to everybody's hearts, particularly at this time of year, the retail sector. With Thanksgiving uh, on us today and a big happy Thanksgiving to all our listeners in the US, uh, this is the time of year when the retailers start rubbing their hands together, discounting heavily and hopefully uh, making up their numbers for the year. So we're going to talk to three separate analysts and get three different views of the retail sector at this most crucial time of year. We're going to speak to Dana Telsey, the CEO of the Telsey Advisory Group and a noted retail analyst. We're going to talk to a dear friend of mine, Stephanie Pomboy, the founder of Macro Mavens, who has had the consumer in her crosshairs for some considerable time, uh, reasoning that with the consumer being 70% of the economy, as goes the consumer, so goes the economy, which makes perfect sense to me. And last but by no means least, uh, we have Jim Sullivan joining us. Jim is the president of advisory consulting at Green Street Advisors. And Jim is going to talk to us about the real estate angle as he talks to a group of real estate owners and investors. So we'll get a sense of what the retail sector is doing at the real estate level. So let's get into this without any delay. First up, Dana Telsey, CEO of Telsey Advisory Group. Dana is a noted retail analyst, and we're going to get her views on the retail sector. Dana, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate you taking the time, especially as it's Thanksgiving week. Thank you very much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. 
So we are talking about something this week which is uh, right in your wheelhouse, the retail sector. I know that's something that uh, that you cover and you cover really well. So we figured why not uh, get less of me and more of an expert on the subject. So I really wanted to just get a, a, really an overview from you as we, as we go into the most crucial part of the year for the retail sector. Um, Thanksgiving today, obviously Black Friday tomorrow and Cyber Monday next week. Uh, and just get a sense from you to kick off with just a broad sense of where you think the retail sector is right now. I think overall the retail sector is coming out of the third quarter earnings in a better place. It's in a better place because of the fact that the path over the past two years that retailers have put together to deal with the integration of physical and digital has progressed more than it was two years ago. The other element out there, the consumer's in good shape. They have the ability to spend with employment being good, housing in good shape, the stock market is going up, and the wealth effect is helping. And the other element out there, there's innovation. You need product innovation to drive demand. We're seeing newness in denim. The popularity of selfies is driving sales of cosmetics. The high end with luxury goods is progressing well. And now you're seeing new technologies, whether it's the smart home, voice commerce, Alexa and Google Home, the Nintendo Switch, iPhone X, giving people a lot of reasons to go out and spend money and give them items that they want and hopefully need. So are the, are the, the improved performance of the retailers, uh, now are these improved from poor comps or do you see when you track the companies themselves, are you seeing genuine improvements in business? And if so, what have they had to do to, to, to improve those businesses? We're seeing the improvements basically coming from the business models but also comps. We've had very challenging same-store sales over the past two years. Lack of innovation, a consumer that basically spent their time watching the election and basically fixated by it. And today what you have going on is we're seeing a shift in what consumers are spending money on. It's not only the buying of goods, but it's the doing of activities, basically a synonym for the word experiential. So I think what you're seeing retailers do is figuring out a way to marry the purchasing of goods with an activity, bringing people together. Loyalty programs have been enhanced. Technology has become more sophisticated. We're seeing the ability to buy online and pick up store in store being made easier. So it's a 360-degree circumference from the sales line to the expense structure that's been enhanced. And you know what? There's a long way to go. Now, this is interesting because obviously we've seen the retail sector under tremendous pressure. Um, in the equities, we've seen the, the likes of J.C. Penney, obviously, and Sears, um, really, really struggle. Uh, and we've also seen Walmart outperform, and, and um, that has historically been a sign perhaps of stress amongst the consumer, but you're saying that you're seeing uh, some really decent blue sky from the, from the consumer. Yes, I'm seeing decent blue sky. I think part of the issue is, is that you have different types of consumers. You have the low-end consumer, and look what you've been seeing with the discounters like Walmart. You have the high-end consumer. That high-end consumer in the U.S. is doing fine. You're not getting as many international tourist travelers to the U.S. as you had in the past. And I think what's really changing is the business model of how consumers are shopping, what's available online, what's available in store, and figuring out how companies today, brands in particular, marry that experience of of having an online offering with having a store offering. Because essentially, when you're a brand, a brand has to say what it does and do what it says. Yeah, I mean, we've seen, obviously, talking particularly about the online experience, obviously we've seen Amazon just eating everybody's lunch. So you're starting to see stores respond uh, to that as they, as they have to do, I guess, to survive now. So, so can you talk a little bit about that dynamic, talk a little bit about what Amazon's done um, and how you're seeing companies start to maybe try and fight back at any particular companies that are doing a good job of doing that? I think what Amazon has done essentially is it's really, it was, is a wake up call. It was a wake up call that new business models are emerging, that technology needs to be integrated, that the data that Amazon has about what's selling, what's not selling, the speed that they offer is certainly something that everyone has to learn and integrate into their own business model. What's been the issue is the fact that the price integrity of Amazon, it's making many brands who go, who go on Amazon and those who don't go on Amazon, how do you protect your price integrity? It makes for pricing transparency. And I think at the end of the day, Amazon's going to be another channel of distribution, just like department stores may be. However, what's going to change is that you can't just 
put in denim jeans and have 50,000 denim jeans. Brands want their own identity. They want their own type of website environment that's a window to their brand, just like a store is a window to who they are. So I think we're still in the early stages of seeing companies have their own website that's differentiated and companies that are partnering with wholesale online providers. And we're still in the early innings. I think that this year, buy online, pick up in store, ship from store, online growth is still faster than store growth. And what you're seeing on the physical space, stores are becoming more productive, whether everyone is reducing the size of the box, whether they're investing in their box and remodeling. If you don't invest in your own stores, then you're not going to be able to see the continual increase in wallet share of existing customers and garnering of new ones. And I think online and the fact that you have new channels of distribution is forcing everyone to get better, to get faster, and to be more productive. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about Amazon because you can't really talk about retail without digging into Amazon. And we've touched on the fact that they've really been eating everybody's lunch. But what are you seeing now that Amazon have moved into bricks and mortar with Whole Foods? Um, what do you see as the future, the next you know, 12 to 24 months for Amazon? Where do you see them going from here? I think overall Amazon is still going to look how they made the deal with Nike. I think we're going to see more partnership deals. I think we're going to see more differentiation of product, what may be on Amazon versus others. I think we're going to see, obviously, Amazon's purchase of Whole Foods. I think there could be other physical combinations that happen with Amazon. The test that Amazon is now doing with Kohl's, selling devices in 10 stores, returning goods, and the return of goods in 82 stores. And I've been to the to see that set up. And essentially, there's a lot of shoes that are being returned to Kohl's. And when the shoes are returned, guess what? The consumer is walking around the store and buying something else also. So I think the physical integration of Amazon with other physical providers, I think we're going to see more of that. And I think we're going to see physical providers become better digital providers too. Do you see any pressure being put on Amazon from an antitrust type of angle. I mean, obviously, they, they are becoming so big now. Um, and you're starting to see something of a backlash against big tech. You're starting to see talk about Facebook and you're starting to see talk about Google. Amazon certainly falls in that, uh, in that sphere and they have become such a big threat to retail now. Do you see any clouds on the horizon for them from a, from a regulatory point of view? Uh, this has been talked about for years. Yeah. And it's something that still is being talked about. Um, I think that whether it's the National Retail Federation, whether it's the International Council of Shopping Centers, industry organizations, market share leading companies in other, in other spaces have all been working together diligently in order to have a more fair playing field, especially the taxes. There was some number out there that talked about the fact that Walmart may have paid over $60 billion in taxes yeah. over a number of years compared to Amazon only spending a billion. There's a lot that can be, be done with those dollars. Um, only time will tell, but it's certainly on everyone's radar. So, so what are you expecting? As we go into uh, the, the holiday shopping season, we, we're, we're heading into uh, to Black Friday tomorrow. What are you looking to see this year? What, what would constitute a good Black Friday, good, good holiday shopping uh, start for you? I think overall you want to see traffic out there. You want to hear about sales increases. You want to hear about hit items. You want to hear that it's cold weather because that hurt, certainly helps to drive the cold weather accessory and clothing sales. I think that's encouraging. And you want to hear a robust business go afterwards because Cyber Monday is important too. Typically around 9 to 11% of holiday season sales come from Thanksgiving weekend. Around 40% of holiday season sales come from the 10 days leading up to Christmas. It's a long season. Christmas is on a Monday. The benefit that we're going to get from Christmas falling on a Monday, given that you have that weekend, is extensive. And each day becomes more and more important as the season goes on. So when you look, when you look ahead, uh, you, you see renewed strength from the consumer. You see renewed confidence in the retail sector. Um, is there anything that you're looking out as a potential trouble spot, or do you see this as being a pretty smooth ride from here, assuming we get through the holiday season and the numbers are good? Retail is never smooth. I mean, we always right. have ups <laughs> and downs. 
you have an apparel world where apparel's contracted and you've seen the increases in home and other categories take share. Rising health care costs have taken, definitely taken a bigger share of the consumer's wallet. You have companies out there that have had a very challenging 2017 that reported same-store sales declines. And you have businesses out there, certainly local businesses, that are looking to take share. You have a department store world, which is big in terms of the number of stores they have, big in terms of their size of their stores, and are working to reinvent themselves. So what I see out there is the, the troubled retailers hope it, hopefully being able to manage through this time period, but maybe do they shrink a little bit in terms of number of doors. I think the, the retailers that are experiencing growth, like the off-pricers, like the discounters, continuing to be able to garner more share. And I think those apparel retailers that can retool and offer something unique and innovative that can customize the product, collaborate on social media to gain awareness, could basically reinvent themselves. Brands have that opportunity. We've seen it with Coach. You've seen it with Burberry. You've seen it with Gucci. You've seen it with Nike over time. You've seen it with Adidas. It's only a matter of time to see who's the next reinvention out there, but you got to get there. you got to move. Yeah. I, now, obviously, the other, the flip side of that is we've seen a lot of closures, a lot of uh, stores closing. We've seen a lot of uh, increased vacancy uh, amongst the mall space. Are there any places, any sectors that you would, would highlight as having a particularly good outlook or a particularly bad outlook? Feels like the discounters have a very good outlook. They certainly seem like they're growing, as are the off-pricers. Have, they continue to have a very good outlook, so that's very solid there. I'd say the home area continues to be solid. There continues to be concerns over the department store space. That's a concern. Women's apparel has continued to be a concerning area too. You, you point out that the discounters there as having a, a decent outlook. You know, I look at increased credit card borrowings and, and, and increased prospects for the discount sector, and that to me uh, is a bit of a red flag. You don't see it that way. You think do you think this is just a, a good point in the cycle for that sector? The discounters have they've invested in in wages. They have managed their prices very carefully. They're negotiating with vendors very aggressively. They are integrating online, and I think they're getting a wider share. The discounters overall are looking to become more differentiated. When you have a company like Walmart, the biggest retail companies in the world, improve their traffic, that's impressive. Fantastic. All right, well, Dana, uh, just let the folks at Gnome uh, know how they can maybe follow you on Twitter or, or keep up with your research. Where can they find you? They can, con- they can find me on Twitter at, at Dana Telsey. They can email me at dtelsey at telseygroup.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us on Adventures in Finance. Thank you. So I have to say a fairly rosy view from Dana there, which is good to hear and uh, sets us up nicely for my second guest. Uh, my friend Stephanie Pomboy is an economist and the founder of Macro Mavens. And I know Steph has had a fairly dim view of the consumer and the prospects for the retail sector for some time. So Steph, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. Now, we are talking about retail and the consumer this week, and uh, you were literally the first name that sprang to mind because you've been on this consumer story for, for such a long time now. Um, and so I thought... I'm look, a broken record on, <laughs> yeah, right. the, well, on the consumer. We'll stick with the broken clock because at least then we both know that you know we'll both be right twice at some point, hopefully. Eventually. Eventually. So, um, yeah, I guess let's, I'm going to give you a really broad question to start, but your observations on the consumer and you know take it back as far as you want in terms of how you form that opinion okay well um i thank you for providing me that leeway because i think when you're looking at the consumer you really have to cast your mind back a decade um to the housing bubble uh and you know i've been on this thesis basically since before the housing bubble burst that when it did it would fundamentally change the us consumers behavior in that they wouldn't always be willing to borrow to fund a lifestyle that was beyond their means. And what started out as a theory became a reality after the bubble burst. And you could see that, you know, for the first part after the crisis, the first few years of the recovery, the household sector really resisted the impulse to borrow. 
and they actually increased their saving rate. And, you know, you had sort of that new normal of weaker consumer spending because of that. Um, And for some reason, everyone sort of then forgot about that whole new normal thesis and went back to analyzing the U.S. consumer through sort of a standard pre-crisis lens where the presumption was if you gave someone an extra dollar, they would spend it. You know, the thought that they might actually save was sort of unfathomable. Um, And yet all the data supported, you know, you had the saving rate went all the way up to 8%. Um, and it, despite massive inflation and financial assets that swelled net worth um, and incredibly low debt service, you know, people just really were exhibiting a whole new sort of parsimony uh, on the consumer spending front. And then, of course, Obamacare happened, and the ability to be financially responsible became um, a lot harder uh, as people found one of the largest non-discretionary outlays going up substantially in price. So then after the saving rate peaked at 8%, basically the moment Obamacare went into effect in 2013, it went all the way back down to 3% because people just couldn't afford to keep up with that increase in uh, medical expenses. So, I mean, I guess with that sort of by way of broad backdrop, my starting point on the consumer has been that, you know, we were still in this new normal and that what you were seeing in terms of retail was sort of, um, has been very disappointing and subdued and all the excitement about Amazon sort of missed the point that more broadly consumer spending was in this sort of weaker, longer phase and that maybe Amazon was gaining share of what would be sort of a, a less lucrative pie going forward. Yeah, that's, that's funny. the data is so clear, and you, you pointed out in a series of really good charts, and when you look at that, that the spending on healthcare particularly, you know, this idea that people are now back to borrowing again, but they're borrowing to fund non-discretionary purchases. I mean, they're, they're borrowing to fund their lifestyle. I mean, that, that's... That's, and we're not talking extravagant lifestyle here. They're, they're, they're borrowing money to pay food bills and rent and all the things that are necessities. Right. Uh, actually, if you look at um, consumer uh, borrowing, uh, consumer credit versus non-discretionary outlays, now we're at the point where more than every dollar of non-discretionary spending growth is explained for, you know, is accounted for by rising borrowing. So they are increasingly having to turn to credit cards where they were trying so hard to be, you know, financially responsible. Now they really have no choice. Um, so you are seeing those debt numbers as were last week with the New York Fed on the, the quarterly household debt um, report. You know, they were all moving back up uh, just out of distress. So uh, it's not for nothing that you're also seeing delinquency rates go up at a time when the unemployment rate is the lowest in 17 years. Right. And again, debt service is at record lows and net worth is at record highs. So, you know, the idea that the consumer is doing just fine is really belied by all of those developments. But this, you know, the strange thing is, as you pointed out, before it actually happened, you talked about, well, look, if they, if they slash rates down to the floor people are going to save more. And that's exactly what they did. And it's, it's human nature. And when we had a gentleman on a couple of weeks ago, um, uh, Dr. Miles Kimball, who's an Eaton professor at, at Colorado Bowl University, talking about this from, you know, sort of an academic perspective. And this idea that, that models generally are looking for certain results when they, when they tweak their, their inputs has been borne out to those guys on the one hand because they're seeing the kind of numbers they expected. But when... Like you do, you dig into the data and you understand that, okay, you might be seeing the borrowing gap, you might be seeing what you thought you were going to see, but if you look just one level down, you'll see this is stress. This is not people going out like you thought they would and borrowing more to spend more. Absolutely. I mean, if you just look at the the numbers over the last five years, which I view as sort of the span post-ACA, basically, since Obamacare, 
um, consumer spending growth is $2.4 trillion. Incomes are up $2 trillion. So you got a problem right there. Um, wages are only up $1.5 trillion. So the amount of your income that's actually spendable as opposed to phantom, you know, vacation days and other benefits that you can't actually fill up a gas tank with and pay your mortgage with, you know, create an even larger gap that you've got to navigate between your your spending um, and what you're taking home. And so, you know, this is why you've had this incredible pressure on saving as people have had to dip into savings and, and borrow on their credit cards. So credit card growth over that same span that, you know, spending is up $2.4 trillion and wages are only up one and a half. Not surprisingly, credit card borrowing is up $900 billion. So it's exactly the difference between those two numbers. Um, and again, you know, it seems patently clear that people aren't doing this because they want to. Um, they're doing it because they have to. And sort of on a more micro level, one thing I look at as a sign of distress is the performance of Walmart relative to the rest of the retail sector. Um, because in times past, when more and more people have to, you know, walk in the front door of Walmart rather than going you know, to JCPenney, or well, that's not a good example, but Nordstrom, let's say, um, it's an indicator of a turn in the cycle. And it's been a great sort of uh, marker of when the economy is starting to decelerate or when it's starting to accelerate. When Walmart starts to outperform, it's a bad sign. And Walmart starts to underperform, things are usually looking up. So it's interesting today that all the chatter is about how well Walmart's doing, right. and yet everyone seems to be convinced that the economy is just fine. Well, I mean that that um, that chart of yours, the Walmart Nordstrom chart, is just such a great it's such a great overlay to to any part of the cycle. It's, I'm surprised more people don't look at it. But the the, the Walmart numbers on uh, I guess Friday they came out um, with their numbers and you know blowout quarter and they raised guidance and everyone's cheering this thing, thinking this is uh, right. this is unequivocal good news. But the, I mean the truth to your point is perhaps something slightly less sinister. You know, this brings me on to the Amazon phenomenon. And again, that's something that you've spoken about previously, that there's just this what, unwarranted, perhaps, euphoria about Amazon, how it, this is just eating everything alive. But the truth, when you dig into to Amazon, both from the numbers of the company and from the effect it's having on the retail sector, is slightly different, no? Oh, absolutely. Actually, you know, even if you look at what's going on with online sales, the growth in online sales is slowing dramatically. Um, you know, uh, the non-store sales numbers, the growth in non-store sales peaked a year and a half ago at about 15% year-on-year growth. We're now half of that. So you've seen a very sharp slowdown. Now, admittedly, we're still at 7%, so people say, hey, that's fabulous. Yeah. But, you know, no one pays any attention to the trend, which is uh, moving sharply lower. And I think, um, you know, clearly this is an area where you have to draw a distinction as well between nominal and real in terms of, you know, people may be shopping online because they have complete, um, you know, price clarity, and so they're able to identify the cheapest place to buy the stuff that they're trying so hard to buy with their limited incomes and uh, the pressure of rising non-discretionary expenses. So, again, I mean, I, I do feel like in the broad brushstrokes, we clearly have an environment where the U.S. consumer is struggling, and any sort of uh, good news on the online side is just sort of a shift in the composition of a pie that really is slowing uh, and has been throughout this entire post-crisis period. I mean, basically, you can pinpoint on a chart of consumer spending or retail sales the moment when the fiscal stimulus measures that were applied during the depths of the crisis finally exhausted themselves. You know, in 2011, you really saw a peak in consumer spending, and then it started to roll over, and then it really got hit hard again when the ACA took effect. So today is Thanksgiving, and this is the time of year, obviously, when um, 
all the hopes get up. It's, it's, it's Black Friday, it's the run-up to Christmas. What do you see looking into that crystal ball of yours for the rest of this year? Because the sales last year seemed to me to be pretty disappointing in terms of, in terms of Black Friday sales, but it was spun, as it always seems to be, as, uh, as, as a great time for retailers. Are they going to be able to do that this year, or do you, do you think that we're going to see more belt tightening? Well, I think we, this time we're definitely going to have to draw, again, a distinction between how many units they're selling and at what price, because it seems like, you know, here we are, and you're already getting flash sale alerts for, you know, pre-sale ahead of Black Friday. So they're getting promotional before or even at the day. And I recall last year, you know, getting 40% off from places as lofty as like Barney's several weeks, you know, before the holidays. So they really started these sales way ahead of Christmas, um, which obviously is not an indication of uh, tremendous pricing power. Um, so I think that's going to be really important to look at. I guess, you know, we uh, will also have to maybe we'll have this excuse of the hurricane effect still <laughs> impacting. You know, it seems like every time there's some weakness, it's written off as an exception. Uh, you know, weather has been blamed for a lot. It was too warm, so they couldn't sell sweaters. You know, it's too wet because of the hurricanes or whatever. So, you know, it would be hard for me to get excited about the idea that this is the moment when people will recognize that the consumer really is facing a larger fundamental uh, struggle and that it's not just a one-month phenomenon. Um, But, you know, time will tell. I think the other thing is that a lot of the news that's softer is going to be dismissed as, you know, a current sort of irrelevant development because we're about to get these tax cuts and then all of a sudden the consumer is going to fling open his wallet and uh, run out there and spend with abandon. Uh, Never mind again, you know, if I'm right on this post-crisis mentality where they really want to repair their balance sheets, um, maybe they'll take the opportunity to save that money and repair the damage that's been done in the last few years you know, where they've had to ramp up their credit card borrowing, et cetera, rather than running out to buy, you know, another iPod or something like that. Yeah, other music players are available. Um, I, feel, I feel like I have to have that. But you, it's, it's, everywhere I look, I see um, headlines about another massive increase in healthcare coming early next year as well. So you have to believe that people are also reading that and perhaps – thinking, well, you know, I'm, I'm clearly going to have to save some money here because my premium's going to go up again. Absolutely. Exactly. So, and, and you know, on the tax cut side, I don't really know that people are going to run out. You, you know, you've seen these huge increases in confidence and the prevailing wisdom is, well, that means that people see these tax cuts coming and they're feeling really good about, uh, you know, what their finances are going to look like next year. So they're going to spend in anticipation of that happening. And the reality is that confidence has been going up basically since the economy bottomed in 2009. You know, you look at uh, consumer confidence, the the conference board measure has tripled over that stretch. And it hasn't stopped the steady deceleration in consumer spending growth uh, in spite of that. So, you know, month after month, People point to these strong confidence numbers and say, look, it's, you know, spending's about to pick up. And they've been doing that for eight years now to, to no avail. To no avail, indeed. Steph, look, it's been so great to have you on the, on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, I, I'm delighted to be able to say that after much pressure from me and a lot of other people, you've finally taken to Twitter. So where can people uh, follow, you, <laughs> follow you on Twitter? Oh, my goodness. At S. Palmboy. At That's Pomboy, indeed. And anybody <laughs> out there listening who isn't following Steph is missing a trick. So, uh, so get out there and just click follow. Steph, yeah. thanks again. It's always great fun talking to you and happy Thanksgiving. Thank you and the same to you. All right. So no one can ever say that we here at Adventures in Finance aren't balanced. That's two uh, kind of opposing views of the retail sector there. So I think that makes sense at this point to really transition into the into the real estate side of things. Obviously, whatever happens with the retail sector has a big impact 
on real estate. And joining us now is Jim Sullivan, the president of advisory and consulting at Green Street Advisors. So Jim, thanks for joining us on Adventures in Finance. Um, I'd love to get your perspective on what's going on in real estate. So perhaps you could you, you could lay out where you come from and how you look at the real estate and retail sector and where they meet up. So the Green Street story is that we're a, a real estate research firm, and we spend a lot of time looking at real estate in the uh, publicly traded arena, that is through real estate investment trusts, and we spend a lot of time looking at real estate in the private domain. What's interesting about retail is that uh, certainly in the mall sector, um, mall industry is the REIT industry, and the REIT industry is the mall industry in the sense that um, about 80% of the malls that count in the United States are owned by publicly traded companies. So we have visibility into those malls and into those operators that's quite a bit different than in other property types. Uh, if you were to talk about apartments, if you were to talk about office buildings, warehouses, about 10% of the real estate is owned by public companies. But in the mall sector, it's about 80% that's owned by the public REIT. So we have this terrific window into retail um, through the malls and the mall REITs that uh, is unusual. We also have a lot of malls that are um, collateral in CMBS financings. And so through the CMBS documents, we get yet another treasure trove of information and data that gives us insight into how malls are um, doing and uh, gives us insight into a lot of the concerns and apprehension about malls. And retail these days, we can quantify it. We can see it actually happening in the numbers. Most of the retail news as it relates to bricks and mortar has not been very promising, not very encouraging. And the reason for that, of course, is that um, e-commerce has taken a toll on bricks and mortar retail. Uh, It has hurt all forms of uh, bricks and mortar retail, ranging from malls to power centers to grocery anchored shopping centers. And uh, e-commerce is the broad topic. Amazon is the 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 primary culprit that uh, people will point to in terms of what's happening in retail. But, you know, retail has a long history of evolving uh, from uh, general stores to catalogs to malls to power centers, et cetera. And we're in the midst of a transformation that's disruptive. It's abrupt. It's hard to get your hands around. And it's creating a lot of damage for some, but huge opportunity for others. And what the data is showing is that uh, existing bricks-and-mortar retail owners need to be nimble, they need to be flexible, they need to hopefully be surrounded by terrific demographics and income levels for the shoppers who could shop at their centers if the owners uh, and the retailers provide a great, interesting, entertaining opportunity for those who do come to their, the, the shopping centers. But uh, things are changing fast, and some will indeed be left behind. And that's a lot of the headlines that you see these days. So whether it's Sears, whether it's uh, other department stores, closing stores, whether it's um, ubiquitous retail brands going out of business, uh, those are the headlines, um, and there will be those left behind. But there's a lot of opportunity for those that are forward-looking and not not, uh, completely anchored to the ways of the past. Well, we'll get to those opportunities in a second, but uh, I wanted to just dig in with you. You mentioned this very popular idea that Amazon is basically the culprit for everything that's going on with bricks and mortar. Um, but I'm curious, do you think that's uh, a valid explanation? Because you know, a lot, a lot of people disagree with that. It's become a little bit controversial. And you know, Stephanie Pomboy seems to think it's much bigger than that. Um, what's your view on this? Yeah, you know, I have to say with a little bit of uh, caution, since since uh, I'm not a mall shopper, that's not me. Uh, But that is indeed my wife, that is indeed my daughter, and so I get a lot of perspective from their anecdotes. But most importantly, we need to look at where people like to shop and where they shop. And the mall experience for many decades in the U.S., the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, even last decade, was a terrific experience. People liked going to the mall. Uh, there was a lot happening. There was a lot of energy. The things that people wanted to buy were available in the mall and, and often nowhere else. And that all changed with e-commerce and particularly with Amazon, the ability to go online, find what you want, find the things that you need, maybe buy something that you don't need, but showed up uh, on your, your computer 
Um, and the convenience of having that delivered to your home, having that delivered to your office has just changed the shopping dynamic. Uh, if, if you're going to go to the mall, uh, you want it to be entertaining. You want it to be a great experience. You don't want to have to struggle for parking and go to stores that aren't exciting or don't have your size, your fit, whatever it might be. And that's been the challenge for uh, the mall owners and for the retailers that inhabit those malls. It's um, convincing someone that the convenience of buying on your computer and having it delivered to your house is uh, overwhelmed by a great ex- social experience that happens at the shopping center. So um, you know, that, that's sort of the challenge for any existing bricks-and-mortar property owner is to create that sense of excitement that um, certainly was the case in a day gone by, the 60s, 70s, and 80s, 90s for the malls, for example. So, Jim, let's get back to those opportunities you mentioned on. Obviously, we're always looking to find out where they may be. Uh, Where do you see perhaps some rays of light, particularly from an investment perspective? Uh, Boy, that is the question of the day. So whether you're talking about REITs that own shopping centers, whether you're talking about publicly traded retailers, uh, a lot of the work that we do at Green Street relates to uh, CMBS investors who are looking at bonds that are collateralized by mall properties, and they're trying to figure out whether the discounts at which those bonds are trading are too big or too small, and whether there is indeed investment opportunity. Um, The sentiment is very negative. Uh, The sentiment uh, and the headlines, supported by the headlines, uh, whether it's store closings, bankruptcies, what have you, uh, the sentiment is quite negative, uh, but it is a fair question as to whether it's overdone or not. To quantify it for you, uh, we have terrific publicly traded mall owners, uh, Simon, General Growth, uh, GGP, their current name, um, these are terrific companies that own some of the best malls in the country that are trading in the public market at discounts to the private market value of their assets, which are unprecedented. The discounts that the fear, the negative sentiment has imposed on the stock prices of these uh, terrifically run mall companies is unprecedented. And I think it's an exclamation point on how um, uh, negative the expectations are for malls in the United States. And um, uh, what's interesting about those discounts is that in the last couple of weeks, we've seen uh, a lot of very smart investors start to circle around these companies and say, hey, maybe those discounts were too big. Maybe the uh, prices expressed are resulting from this negative sentiment is too too severe, and maybe there is investment opportunity. So, you know, you always have to separate in our business, you have to separate negative tones from how things are being priced. And there's vast debate over whether the pricing discounts surrounding bricks and mortar retail in the United States are too big or appropriate. And you can find uh, a, a lot of parties who will give you a cogent argument on either side of that. Uh, ledger, but uh, clearly, you know, they're, 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 for those that are, are courageous, there are some interesting pricing discrepancies, which may create really interesting investment opportunities. All right. Well, Jim, thank you so much for joining us on Adventures in Finance and giving a perspective on the real estate sector as it pertains to retail. Terrific. Thanks. That also concludes this week's feature. You know, the retail sector is so important as as. Steph has said so many times the consumer is 70% of the economy in the US and and it really is a sector that you really have to have an opinion on. We've had two contrasting opinions this week. Um, So I guess it's up to everybody to pick a side uh, and invest accordingly. Now that leads us into our Things I Got Wrong segment. Joining us this week is Mark Spiegel, the managing member of Stanfield Capital. Now, many of you out there will remember Mark from uh, our Tesla episode a week ago. He's a very vocal and a very amusing Tesla bear. And I'm delighted to say that we are actually in discussions with a couple of people who uh, are talking about venturing forth and offering us the bull side of the Tesla argument. So rest assured, I'm not going to let that drop. That's not going to be one of these things that just mysteriously disappears. We will get a bull to come on and we will uh, present the bull case for Tesla. Um, Don't let the fact that we are talking to a couple put you off. If you still think that you are maybe that bull, then drop us a line. But until uh, we get to that, let's hear what Mark has to say about a thing he got wrong. 
So, Mark, welcome back. Uh, it's great to have you on the Things I Got Wrong segment. Um, I, I've been looking forward to hearing your Things I Got Wrong because I know, uh, if, if nothing else, it's going to be one of the more colourful and entertaining uh, stories that we've had this season. So, so over to you. Tell us, tell us what you got wrong and, and what you learned from it. Uh, yeah, that's easy. Um, <clears throat> so Wall Street is actually a second career for me. I spent My first career was in the commercial real estate business, and I sold that to my partner and took a couple of years off and really taught myself finance and, you know, had always been interested in stocks. So during that period of time, I, I absolutely fell in love with a micro cap uh, story stock, a technology company. It's actually still listed. Don't need to get involved with the name here. But anyway, they had this amazing new technology that, that I thought would take over the world. <laughs> actually, not that different from Tesla in some ways, and uh, although a completely different kind of technology. And so I, I put about 70% of my brokerage account into the stock. Again, this was before I was an investment banker and long before I was running anybody else's money. And, um, and then I called them up and basically said, hey, guys, you know, you have this great new product coming out and I own a lot of your stock. Uh, how about I work for the company? So I actually spent a year working for this company. Um, they're on the West Coast. I was based here in New York. And it was, it was the greatest education I ever had. The product was a complete flop. It was a disaster in, in, in many different ways. Um, I met a lot of terrific people. And anytime, not anytime, I would, I would speak to somebody, a big company as a potential client for this thing, and a press release would go out from the company about, yeah, we're talking to, you know, ABC Corp. Not literally the, you know, not literally right. ABC television, but, you know. And, um, and the point being that I got a great look at what's really going on inside a company versus what the press releases say, you know, what the CEO says on the quarterly conference calls. You know what the pre- what what the what the quarterly press releases say. Like, oh yeah, you know we lost another five million this quarter, but we have all these potential deals going, and the pipeline is great, and blah blah blah. I saw what a sales and marketing staff will tell the VP of sales in terms of filling in a pipeline of potential deals just to keep them happy and keep their jobs for another quarter. I mean, and, and what he in turn will tell the CEO. I, I mean, it was it was a fantastic education. So. At the end of this uh, year, I left the company. I sold my stock. I probably lost, I don't know, 80% of my investment in this company. It was the best tuition I ever paid in my life. It made me a much more uh, skeptical investor to the point, you know, now where if I meet a management team, I just assume that they're lying and, um, and you know, let them try to, you know, prove otherwise. And it's been incredibly useful to me. Since then, there have been very few stocks that that I've lost much money on, you know, over time, you know. So um, that's that's my story. Best education and, and tuition I ever paid. It, it's, it's so funny you say that because you know, we as human beings, we're just hardwired to believe people. Our, our default position is if someone's going to look you in the eye and tell you something, you know, you, we wouldn't lie. So why would they? And, and it's it's amazing how often particularly now as you see in the market the whole gap non-gap thing everything is done to juice the numbers to beat the quarter in finance in my opinion more than just about anywhere else with the possible exception of politics uh that mindset that we're hardwired to have is really dangerous because generally speaking people are out to paint the rosiest picture they possibly can of anything you know news results, numbers, whatever it may be. It's, it's extraordinary. Well, not only that, but look at how a guy gets to be the CEO of a company. I mean, he's a, he's a likable guy. He's probably a better looking than average guy. You know, he dresses well. He's, he's got a great sort of line of, of, of smooth, you know, BS or not BS. So, you know, you're dealing with a really, really good sales guy if you're talking most of the time, if you're talking to the CEO of a company. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great point. I, I've seen this happen so many times. And I, like you, uh, maybe it's an age thing, I don't know, but, but the older I got, the more skeptical I got. And I kind of like it better <laughs> that way, i got to say. Well, it's, it's, it's an experience thing, you know? I mean, I would never, so, you know, I, I'm a very immature 56, okay? But, but I've got a lot of experience, I mean, in terms of, in terms of business. 
I would never give money to somebody in his 20s, you know, to manage for me because he just hasn't, he doesn't have the experience. He hasn't been burned enough, you know? So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, you get these scars and so that, so that's, that's the, that's the best experience I've ever had. I mean, I could, there's all kinds of minor stories, you know, buying a cyclical stock at the wrong time, et cetera, et cetera. But, but basically believing management and then being inside a company and seeing what's really going on, it was priceless. Yeah, I, I, I think the other lesson there is work for the company before you buy a whole bunch of the shares as well. That's another lesson <laughs> that people might take away. <laughs> well, yeah, give you some real insight. <laughs> there you go. Well, thanks again for joining us. It's always such a treat to talk to you. Uh, likewise. Thank you, Grant. It was a lot of fun. All right, well, that concludes yet another episode of Adventures in Finance. Before we leave you to your turkey, a legal disclaimer. Anything you heard on this episode should not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and, of course, the opinions of our contributors. So please do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, place your stops, and always, always trade responsibly. Now, next week, we are going to look at the all-important factor of confidence. How does it change the way we make decisions How does it change our perception and our preferences when it comes to the markets? And I'm delighted to say that joining me are two analysts who've become very good friends, Peter Atwater, the president of Financial Insights and the author of Moods and Markets, and Dr. Ben Hunt, the chief investment strategist of Salient Partners and the voice behind the excellent Epsilon Theory podcast and the excellent Epsilon Theory letter. Now, these two fine gentlemen are going to join me to discuss the theory that non-market indicators play a much bigger role in the finance industry than anybody may realize, and that they are crucial to understand if you want to identify turning points, either from a bull market to a bear market or vice versa. But that's next week. In the meantime, we have Thanksgiving to negotiate safely, and hopefully none of you will be out there in a food coma listening to this. Between now and next week, if you've got an interesting question about this week's show or anything else you've heard on Adventures in Finance, then we would love to hear from you. So please send us an email or leave us a voice note at podcast at realvision.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, then subscribe to us on iTunes. And James, what do they do once they've subscribed? Leave a review. It's that simple. Leave a review. It's that simple. And it really, really does matter. To keep up to date with the latest interviews, research publications, and of course, podcast episodes, then follow us on Twitter at realvision.com. You will also find us lurking in the dark recesses of Facebook and LinkedIn if you just search for Real Vision. You can follow me on Twitter at TTMYGH. And you can follow me at AIFJames. Yes, the coveted position of James's 302nd follower is up for grabs this week. Don't miss out. That's it from us. We will see you next week. Thank you, as always, for listening to Adventures in Finance. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips and ads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com